Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Over the last several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts together as a church family. And there are some reasons that we set out on this endeavor together. Uh, here's just a couple of them. First, although we live 2,000 years later than the events that we read about in the book of Acts, and we live in a different part of the world, we are connected to these individuals, and we're connected to these events that we read about in a very special way. Acts is a window into the earliest years of the church, and we are part of the same church. We have the same mission. We have the same power that the earliest Christians have, and we have the same hope. Another reason that we've engaged in this study is that there are many similarities between the obstacles that the early church faced in the spread of the gospel and the obstacles that we face today as we engage in the spread of the gospel. Now, we may not deal with all the same kinds of, of issues that they did, the kinds of persecution and the amount of persecution that they faced, and there are certainly numerous cultural and societal differences between them and us. However, like them, we are proclaiming the gospel in a world of conflicting ideas and conflicting religious beliefs. We proclaim the gospel in a culture whose first stance is skepticism toward it. And like the earliest church, we need to give people reasons to believe as we preach the truth. And so there are lots of similarities between them and us. And while there are numerous other reasons that we as a church family have engaged in the study of the book of Acts, I'll give you just one more reason. That the same God, the same Christ, who is at work in the earliest church as we read about in the book of Acts, is the same God who is at work today, who continues to empower his people for mission, and who continues to build his kingdom. And so as we read of how God worked in the early church, May we be filled with excitement and anticipation of how he will work today and through us. Our passage today builds upon what we've read over the past two weeks. And so just to remind you, the apostles, Peter and John, were heading up to the temple for the afternoon prayer service when they encountered a beggar at the temple gate. Now this beggar was lame and has been since birth. He had never been able to stand. He had never been able to walk. He even had to be carried each day to the place where he would beg. And he'd been begging at the temple for a long time. We know this because he was easily recognized by those who frequented the temple. And so while the text doesn't say how long, I get the impression that it is possibly years, maybe even more than a decade, that this man has sat here begging as people entered the temple. And on this particular day, the beggar asked Peter and John for money as they were passing by. And Peter replied by saying, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that man jumped up and walked in full sight of all the people. And so this drew a crowd, and everyone was amazed at what had taken place. Clearly, this was a sign from God. 
And Peter made the most of the opportunity and proclaimed the gospel to the crowds that were forming, explaining that Jesus was the promised one of God. And it was in his name that this man was healed. And so in the midst of the crowds at the temple with this formerly lame beggar standing with Peter and John, our narrative continues. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and we will begin in the first verse. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The text says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown toward a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. You know, there's an old adage. I'm sure you've all heard it. No good deed goes unpunished. Perhaps as our passage began today, something along these lines came to mind. After all, everything that had happened thus far has been good. I'm not even talking about a Christian good. You know, those things that the Christians believed were good for their cause. No, we're talking about a, a good that was recognized by all. Here's a man who all of the temple regulars knew had been immediately and completely healed. In the midst of all the chaos of the times, the God of Israel had acted in an obvious and an amazing way in full view of all the people. 
In crowds of people on the way to the afternoon prayer service, they saw and were amazed. And into this setting, as everything is going good, everything is going well, the captain of the guard, the captain of the temple guard enters along with the priests and the Sadducees, and they are not happy. The fact that the temple guard was involved means that they perceive these men and this growing crowd as a potential threat. The priests and the Sadducees came to take issue with Peter and John, and they had several reasons why, and I'd like to talk about some of that with you here. As we saw when Jesus himself was teaching at the temple, the priests and the Sadducees were very concerned with who was teaching at the temple precincts. Who authorized them? What are their qualifications? Are they leading people into error? Will their error upset the delicate balance that exists between the Jews and the Romans? Or worse, will their error call down the anger of God? We see in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they weren't just disturbed that the apostles were teaching the people, although clearly they were upset about that, but also because they were proclaiming, A, the resurrection of the dead, and B, the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. And so let me just give you a few words on these distinctions. The first is that the Sadducees, which is a distinct group from the Pharisees and other groups, they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in any future resurrection of the dead. In fact, I had a professor once who said, because they didn't believe in life after death, they were sad, you see. And so as a young Bible student, it was, uh, that was helpful to remember. But the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in any life after death. And here, was the, here were these men on the temple grounds, which they had jurisdiction over, and they were proclaiming that resurrection of the dead will come one day, that there is life after death. And so they're, they're preaching something contrary to what the Sadducees themselves believed. And the Sadducees were the main religious leadership in Jerusalem. They had control over the goings-on at the temple. In fact, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, was made up of mostly Sadducees. And as you see here, they're the ones that are responding to what they perceived was an ideological threat and on the temple grounds itself. And here's this group proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, something the Sadducees believed was a false idea. But what's even worse than that is that these men, the apostles, are proclaiming that Jesus is the central agent in this future resurrection of the dead. Why is this worse? Because it was the Sadducees who were largely responsible for Jesus' arrest, for his condemnation at the home of the high priest, and for his being turned over to the Romans for crucifixion. These Jewish leaders had proclaimed that Jesus was a blasphemer and worthy of death under the law. And now these men are at the temple proclaiming that this same Jesus is the central agent in a future resurrection. And further, people were buying into it. People were believing it. People were joining them. Verse 4 says, But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Houston, we have a problem. And so the apostles were arrested and taken into jail. 
and eventually before the Sanhedrin. Now, I want to make sure you don't miss this moment. You know, sometimes as we're reading through these gospel narratives, uh, through, these, through these stories in Scripture, they go so fast, and sometimes our imagination doesn't activate, and we don't start to think of all the implications of the things that are going on before us. So I want to draw your attention to the potential danger of this moment for the apostles. So first of all, the captain of the temple guard was there. He would have been the person, in fact, to officially arrest Peter and John in this moment. However, I would submit to you that this probably wasn't the first time that the apostles encountered the captain of the temple guard. In fact, Luke 22.52 makes it clear that the officers of the temple guard were the ones who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The multiple accounts of Jesus' arrest make it clear that the apostles also would have been arrested, but they escaped. And so this captain was likely there in the garden as Jesus was arrested. And he probably came to realize that these men were among those who escaped. And so that, of course, raises threat for John and Peter. Further, Peter and John were brought before members of the Sanhedrin, including the high priest who was the one who presided over Jesus' hearing and condemned him as a blasphemer. And here were followers of the same Jesus. And so in the pressure cooker of this moment, it wouldn't have taken much for the apostles to meet their sticky end. And yet remember that this entire episode was at God's direction. It was a sign that God was using to thrust the gospel forward. And so while both of these men, Peter and John, would eventually give their lives in service to Jesus, this was not going to be that day. The crowds had all seen the miraculous sign, and it was clear that God himself had done something amazing through these men. Also, the very evidence of the miraculous sign was standing right before them. The healed man stood next to the apostles as they stood before the Sanhedrin. There was no way that the religious leaders could condemn Peter and John at this moment. Yet what this moment did was afford Peter and John to once again testify to Jesus, the Messiah. Now, there's some rather profound things that Peter and John proclaimed among the religious leaders, and I really wish we had time to delve into all of it today, but I want to at least take a few moments to point out some of the most important ones. Now, when I say that these are profound things, I don't just mean that in my study of this, of this passage, I found them profound. I mean that in this context 2,000 years ago, as Peter is proclaiming these things in the power of the Holy Spirit before the Jewish leadership, it would have been profound in that day, and these truths are still profound in our day as well. And so the first one is this, and it shouldn't surprise you because we have seen it over and over again, even in the short time we've been in Acts. And the first one is this, that the gospel is true. The gospel is true. Verses 8 through 10 say this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. 
Now first, it's easy to read a passage like this and to assume that Peter is condemning the religious leaders. Boy, did you make a mistake when you rejected Jesus. But that's really not what's going on here. We've already seen in our text from last week that the apostles, speaking in the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that they acknowledged that the religious leaders were ignorant of what they were doing. And we saw last week that these religious leaders truly did believe that Jesus was blaspheming. And therefore, they did what they believed was right according to the law, the law given by God in condemning Jesus to death. But in this moment, Peter was again testifying to the truth that Jesus was who he said he was and that the healing of the lame beggar was evidence of that. But Peter also pointed beyond this most immediate miracle, this most recent sign. He pointed to a greater miracle, a greater sign. So how do we know that Jesus is, the, is who he claimed to be? Because of the resurrection from the dead. See, here's the thing. These, although these very religious leaders condemned Jesus to death, God demonstrated the truth of who Jesus was and the truth of the gospel by raising Jesus from the dead. And so because of that, the tomb is empty something that these religious leaders themselves could have verified. Hundreds of people, including these two men, Peter and John, right here, claim to have personally seen Jesus alive again after his death. And now miraculous signs are being done in Jesus' name, including the healing of this man that all of them knew. And thousands of fellow Jews are believing and committing themselves to this very Jesus. The gospel is true. Again, verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. We see here the essential elements of the gospel, Jesus' death and his resurrection. Friends, if Jesus is the door between life and death, condemnation and salvation, then the gospel is the key to that door. In fact, it's the only key that opens that door, as we're going to soon see from Peter's own words. But if the gospel is the key, then we, as Jesus' followers, as God's people, we need to be people of the gospel. We better understand what the gospel is. We better have responded to the gospel ourselves. We better be able to articulate the gospel to others. And so while you've heard me speak of the gospel on numerous occasions over the past several years, I want to just take this time to explain it to you perhaps in a different way that you might understand it and be able to articulate it to others. And so I want us to remember it perhaps in these three steps. There's a problem that faces humanity. God provided a solution to that problem, and we must receive that solution. I'll say it again. There's a problem that faces humanity. God provided a solution to that problem, and we must receive that solution. And so as you reflect on the gospel, or perhaps as you have opportunity to articulate it to somebody else, I want you to commit to memory those three words, those three steps in explaining the gospel. Problem, solution, receive. So let's talk about these, beginning with problem. Nobody likes talking about the problem. But we need to talk about the problem. And pro the problem has a name. It's sin. Sin is our problem. In fact, we inherited it from our first parents. 
But it's not just their fault because we have perpetuated it throughout our lives. And it has come as a, at a cost. So what is the cost of sin? What is the cost of our problem? Paul put it simply enough for us to understand in Romans chapter 3 when he said the wages of sin is death. And so sin is our problem because sin kills. It's the reason we have difficulty in this life. It's the reason we'll physically die one day. It's the reason we are spiritually dead, cut off from God, and not only for now, but destined for eternity apart from him unless a solution to this problem presents itself. But that's the problem. Sin is the problem. And it's a problem that we caused and a problem that we can't fix. You ever have one of those? You do something, you cause a problem, and yet the problem is just too big for you to undo. Sin is a problem like that. We have, all, we have inherited it. We have added to it. It's a problem. It has caused death, and yet we can't overcome this problem by ourselves. But God can. God can provide a solution to this problem, and he did. So let's talk about the solution. Now, if I asked you, what's the solution? I really hope you'd all say Jesus. But how is Jesus the solution? You could say that Jesus is the solution because he's God, but you'd only be partly right. After all, it is true that Jesus is God, right? That he is divine, that he is deity. He's a, uh, God the Son, the second person of the triune God, right? Is this why we receive salvation in Jesus, though? Well, the Father is also God, but we don't talk about the Father as our solution to the problem of sin. The Holy Spirit is also God, but the Holy Spirit is not the solution to the problem, even though both Father and Spirit are equally divine with the Son. Jesus is the solution to the problem because he died to atone for our sins and because he rose again from the dead. I'll say it again. Jesus is the solution because, yes, he is God, and if he wasn't God, he wouldn't be able to do this. But he's also the solution because he died to atone for our sins and because he rose again from the dead. In fact, Paul puts this very succinctly in Romans 4.25. He says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let me put that in words that we would use. Jesus was delivered over to death in order to pay our debt, in order to solve our problem. But he was also raised to life to secure our right standing before God. And as the book of Acts is making clear over and over and over again, just in what we've read so far, this is a historical fact. God accomplished these things in Jesus Christ so that there could be a solution to our problem. And so we know what the problem is, and now we know that God has given us a solution in Jesus for our problem. So how do we receive this solution? How do people receive this gift of salvation? So let's talk about receiving. First, here's the obvious. Receiving and doing are not the same thing. In the Christian life, there are many things that we do, right? That's just the reality. In fact, that's the, the, the picture that a lot of people uh, misunderstand Christianity about. Oh, it's all about rules. It's all about things you do. It's all about, well, 
That's because Christians do a lot of things, right? We do. We're called to do things. We do things all the time. Here's just some of the things. We love God and we love others. And that comes with some practical applications. In fact, that's, there's innumerable practical actions that stem from that. We engage in ministry with other Christians, and we engage in missions to the world, and we proclaim the gospel to others. We abstain from those things that displease God, those things that are unwise, those things that are categorically sin, the very thing that Jesus saved us from. Further, we do strive to excel in good works of all kinds. In the Christian life, there are many things that we do. However, our salvation is not earned. It's not acquired or purchased by these things that we do. These things don't gain us salvation. Rather, these things we do are our response, our worship to God in light of our salvation, because of our salvation, in response to our salvation. So if that's not how we receive, how do we receive the solution to our problem? How do we receive our salvation? Paul puts this well in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so walk away with this today, please. It is by grace through faith. So let's make sure we understand what those two terms mean. So here's a simple way to understand grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. You know, when I was, uh, when I was younger, my mom, she didn't give us allowance based on uh, if we did our chores because there was a more pressing issue, uh, our behavior. And so my mom gave us uh, our allowance based on whether or not we behaved that week. And there are times when, guess what? I didn't get my allowance because I didn't behave. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that I had to behave in order to get my allowance, but, you know, Kevin misbehaved, and so Kevin didn't earn his allowance, but what if his mother gave him his allowance anyway? That is an act of grace, receiving something that we did not deserve. And Paul puts it this way, that it is by grace that you have been saved. You haven't earned it. You haven't deserved it, but it's given to you anyway. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. The truth is that we can't do enough to earn, to acquire, or to purchase our salvation. Again, we have a problem that we caused and we cannot fix, no matter how hard we try. The only way we can be saved is if God gives it to us freely. Okay, so he gives it to us by grace. How then do we take hold of it? What does by faith mean? And so I want to give you, well, there's several passages that uh, would be uh, appropriate here. Let me give you this one. Romans 10, 9. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So how do we receive God's solution by faith? We believe that God did all that was necessary for our salvation in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection. And we surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Our faith, our trust, our hope, our very lives are placed in Him as our Lord. And so this is the gospel. 
problem, solution, and receive. And I really hope that you take that away from here today and are able to articulate that to others as you proclaim the gospel. And so on this day that we read about in our passage, there were thousands of people, the text says, who recognized the problem, who understood the solution, and who received God's salvation. But here's the reality of it. There also were many, even among the religious leaders, who did not. Perhaps their hope was in what they already believed to be true. Perhaps their hope was in their own righteousness. They thought that maybe they, they uh, were obedient enough to the law to earn God's grace, God's favor. Perhaps they did not want to believe that there was life beyond death and a future resurrection like the, Pharisees, like the Sadducees. Rather. And so why consider Jesus? In our day, there are many reasons that people don't believe. Many things that people hope in instead of the gospel. But here's the thing. Peter addresses this as well. There is only one solution. Only one way of salvation. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Peter speaking, he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other path. There is no other gospel. Jesus made this clear as well. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, if our passage today seems similar to our passage from weeks before and weeks before that and weeks before that, that's because the apostles just keep preaching the gospel. This is because they knew that it was the only solution to the problem, the only salvation for sinful people, the only way that they don't remain separated from God for all of eternity. So why do we study Acts? Because we are the same church with the same power, with the same gospel, on the same mission as those earliest Christians. And so we, too, need to take seriously the exclusivity of the gospel and make it known to the world so that others can repent and turn to God and receive the solution to the problem.